All right, so what does it mean to be blessed? We've talked about this a little bit over the last few weeks because this word, blessed, starts all of the verses in the Beatitudes. Um, the word that we translate there, blessed, is a Greek word, makarios, and it's a bit difficult to translate straight into English, which is why some translations say happy are those, and some say blessed are those. And it's really the kind of word that evokes a feeling or a mental image more than as an exact sort of one-to-one -one translation. Uh, very broadly, to be blessed in this sense means to have a special privilege or to have good luck or to have unique access to something. So in the classical period, so several thousand years ago in Greece, uh, the gods were described by this word as makarios, they were special, they, had, they uh, enjoyed a special status, they had special access to things. They didn't have to work, so they just sat around and ate and drank all the time and tormented humans because there's not a lot else to do. You don't have rent to make or bills to pay, and so they were makarios. They, they had it easy. In the New Testament period, the word was often applied to the rich. So people who were wealthy were blessed. They had money and power and respect. And so they didn't have to really worry about anything. In our lifetime, those things, fortune, power, and reputation are things that can be lost overnight with a bad stock investment or whatever. But in the ancient world, they, they felt more stable, like that's something you were born into. And so it was good luck. You were blessed if you were born into that kind of status where you have special access and power and money. Today, uh, blessed can mean different things. We've talked about that the last few weeks, but I think if we stick with this kind of mental image or feeling about what the word means, it might be the people my kids like to watch on YouTube who have really no concerns, and so they just fill swimming pools with jello, and that's what they do for a living. Um, that's makarios. You're blessed because that's all you've got to worry about. It may be like those folks on Instagram that pop up for me. I don't know what I did to the algorithm, but they, they, they work two hours a week, and they make a million dollars, and they spend the rest of their time like becoming the, their best selves. Do you guys get those ads as well, or is it just me? It's makarios. They don't have anything to worry about. They just work two hours, and then they traipse around the world the rest of the time. I think more seriously, maybe, it's the public figures or the, the people in commerce who seem to have so much wealth and power that no matter what they do wrong or how obviously they do it, they never seem to be accountable for their crimes. They are makarios. They are untouchable. They have money, they have power, and they have respect. And the upshot is, I think in the ancient world, the, the world that Jesus is speaking into, those were considered the keys to life. If you have those things, you're blessed. You don't have to worry about anything. So that's the sort of broader Greco-Roman culture. Within the Jewish sort of biblical culture of the time, they used this word as well, but they used it in their Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it's the word that starts out Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of 
mockers or stand in the, I'm going to get it wrong. I didn't write it down. You know what I'm talking about. It's blessed is the person who doesn't walk the way sinful people walk, but instead they delight in the law of the Lord. And the image of that blessed life is they're like a tree that's planted near a stream of water. And no matter what the season is, no matter what the circumstances are, they're not affected by the change in seasons and circumstances because they've, they're connected to this source of life that never goes away. So the experience in that case is similar to the Greek gods or the wealthy or the whatever. There's this sense that the circumstances of life don't really affect you all that much because you're connected to something that doesn't change. Now, the source for the Israelites is radically different. It's not their connection to wealth and power. It's not their own reputation. It's their connection to God that gives them that, right? And so with one little word, blessed, I think God, uh, Jesus is evoking a feeling, an image of what the good life looks like. And I have to tell you, I've told Amy this before, I don't want like yacht money I just want, don't have to worry about it money, right? So I think all of us can kind of figure out, like, I don't want to say, should we buy this thing or that thing? I just want to say, let's buy the things, right? Like, don't worry about it. Not a yacht, not a place in Malta. I'm not crazy, but I just, this is the kind of thing I think we all crave, is a sort of standard um, baseline security. We don't have to worry about the circumstances. We don't have to worry about where the income comes from or what costs might pop up because we're good, we're blessed. And so I think it becomes really radical to consider who Jesus is referring to when he says that those who are listening are blessed. The people who are gathered with Jesus on the mountain are mostly poor day wage earners. They're the people who show up for a day's work, hope that they get hired, hope to be paid at the end of the day so they can eat, and then wake up tomorrow and do it again. They live in their home country, but that home country is occupied by a foreign military. So the Roman soldiers that we think of as primarily kind of a military force are the local police. And if you want to get out of a jam, you might have to pay them a little bribe, and if you get caught fighting, they may break it up and take something from you. They're, they're, they're living kind of constantly under surveillance uh, among an imperial power, and they are physically tired, and they are physically hungry, and physically thirsty. They likely were born in debt, and will live in debt, and will die in debt. And Jesus says to them, blessed are you. You're like the Greek gods, or like the rich, you don't have to worry about anything. You're like the people who get mailbox money and they just the food just keeps coming because they don't have to worry about it. And maybe we think that that would strike them as encouraging, but I have to think that it probably struck them as out of touch with reality, right? So to quote one of my, uh, or to borrow a quote from Clark Griswold, I think, you know, they might say, look around you, Jesus, we're at the threshold of hell, right? Like, the, nothing is going well, and you say, you are blessed. No one is less like the gods or the rich or even a tree planted by streams of water than the people who are gathered around Jesus on that mountaintop. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. They are meek. 
Jesus is going to encourage them just a few verses on to pray for their daily bread because their daily bread is not a guarantee. No one at that time would have referred to them as blessed. And I don't think that they would have referred to themselves as blessed either. So this is a sort of remarkable claim that Jesus is making. He's saying that these people who are gathered around him, and all of us, I think, who have the ears to hear, are blessed not because of what we possess, but because of what we crave. It's not what we have that makes us blessed. It's what we want. And so what is it that they want? It takes us to number two. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? The, the, the language of hungering and thirsting is really striking here. There's not another uh, beatitude before or after that it includes this kind of imagery. So before it's blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. But this one has a longing attached. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for something. And hunger and thirst are not experiences that we enjoy in general. But if you go and look in the uh, something like BibleGateway.com and just look up that phrase, hunger and thirst, it shows up a number of times in the Old Testament, and it's always really bad. It's always a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. The enemies have destroyed the, temp the, the city, and now we're going to hunger and thirst in the desert. God has lifted his protection, and now we're going to hunger and thirst. Our people are wandering in the wilderness, and they're hungry and thirsty. It's always a negative thing. To hunger and thirst means that you've been deprived of something. Not just something you want, but something that's a basic need. And so I think in this passage, when Jesus refers to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking primarily about those who have been deprived of justice. He's talking about people for whom the most basic needs for survival have been withheld from them. So how do we get there? How can I say it says hunger and thirst for righteousness, but then say that it means they've been deprived of justice? Well, we need to look at the word that's used here, righteousness, a little bit. It's an important word for Matthew. It actually happens, he uses the word seven times in the gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and six of them are on the Sermon on the Mount. So this word righteousness means something important to him. And it, it does mean something in general, like being in right standing with God. It means, again, to kind of use a mental image, it means that you're walking along God's path. You're sort of walking in the way that God walks. It's a journey and you're on the right one. So if you think of Israel as a nomadic people in the Old Testament, they knew what it was like to go through dangerous territory uh, and you wanted to stick to paths that were straight and clear and easy to navigate. And walking in righteousness means sort of that. It means kind of going in the way that you know God has prepared. But the word righteousness has two dimensions, and we usually or very often reduce it to a single dimension, which is a sort of vertical dimension. This vertical dimension is um, our individual rightness with God directly. This idea that I and my behavior am doing what's required of me, and so I as an individual am right in my relationship with God. We often, in the kind of circles that um, we keep in the Protestant evangelical tradition we're in, we talk about righteousness as something that God gives us in Christ, that it's 
we kind of put on Christ's righteousness. Um, and not that we deserve it, but it's a gift uh, by grace through faith. And either of the, those ways of talking about it are very individualistic. I am righteous if my relationship with God is in good standing. And for some of us, if you grew up like I did, um, some of us, this may turn into something like a manic fixation on your own behavior. It may feel like to hunger and thirst for righteousness means to root out all the tiny little behaviors in yourself that feel like there's something God doesn't like or God doesn't want. Um, I think in, in uh, psychology they call it moral scrupulosity, this idea that when you leave a conversation immediately say, I shouldn't have said that and I shouldn't have said this and I shouldn't have said this. Or you ha think something about somebody and you shouldn't have had that thought and now you feel guilty for days. This kind of preoccupation with yourself doing the right thing. And these kinds of things are usually, these preoccupations are usually very internal. It's about what I thought or how I felt or what my motives were. And they're often sort of religious in nature. So they're actions that you do in order to kind of stay right with God. And the Israelites had their version of this. They, am I praying the right number of times per day? And when I do, am I saying the right words? Am I tithing the right amounts of the right things at the right times? Do I observe all the festivals and the celebrations, and do I do it in the right way? For us, it may be a similar list. Am I doing my quiet time often enough? Oh, I skipped a day. Dang it, maybe God's going to be mad at me. Or maybe this thing that I was hoping God would do isn't going to work out because I broke the relationship. Am I giving enough time or money or whatever? Am I attending church enough? And do I have the right thoughts and motives? Am I driving in the right direction? God sees my heart. I think I'm doing right, but maybe I'm not doing right. God should examine me. And this is definitely an aspect of the word of righteousness. It's being sort of walking straight, walking on the right path. But a lot of these kinds of fixations are the result of guilt and fear and even can be coercion, trying to get God to do things because you've done all the right things, right? And that's just sort of one dimension of what it means, what righteousness means. It's the vertical dimension. But righteousness also has a horizontal dimension. This comes out in the fact that in Greek, the word that we have translated here, righteousness, can also be translated as justice. And that's hard for us. It's not a weird quirk of Greek. It's a weird quirk of English that we can't do it both ways. Spanish can do this. French can do this. Other languages can do this. But in English, we just make real firm distinctions between my personal individual behavior and my engagement in the social world with other people that may be just or unjust. But the Bible holds these dimensions together, the, in, the vertical and the horizontal. So Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount in a little bit, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And what's the example that he gives of practicing righteousness? He says, so when you give to the needy, do it this way. So giving to someone in need is an act of righteousness every bit as much as wondering if I've said the right things and think the right things and feel the right things is an act of righteousness. Proverbs 29.7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor and defends them. A wicked man does not understand such things. So part of being righteous is this horizontal commitment to justice among the people who need it. 
which is to say that part of being right with God is being right with other people. And so we have parents, any parents in the house? We have more than, maybe more than one child. Not that having one is wrong. But having two is a better illustration of this. My children love me and love each other. They want to spend one on time, one time with me. They want to make sure that we have a good relationship. We bond in different ways, etc. But they spend a lot of time fighting with each other. And then they want to hang out just one-on-one because they love me. And I'm like, dude, you were just real mean to your sister. Like, yeah, let's play catch, but you got to fix that. As if your relationship to each other has no bearing on your relationship with me. That's just not how it works. If you want things to be right here, I mean, I love you and there's grace for days, but you got to make it right with your sibling, right? And I think God operates with us in, the, in, the, in much the same way as he looks at the way we're treating other people and then we come to him in prayer or in worship and he's like, hey, this is fine, but you got to go make that right. You were awful to them. You're wanting things for yourself that you're unwilling to give to someone else. What do you want me to do with that? I imagine God being a little bit adversarial with me. If that's not the voice that you have when you think about God, (laughs) don't let me change what you've got. I'm just saying. Sometimes when he talks to me, he's a little snarky with me. Um, In the Old Testament and the prophets especially, the thing that God accuses his people of doing wrong most often is the way that they participate in injustice and pretend like it doesn't matter for their relationship with him. And so over and over, he says, yeah, you're praying the right number of times. That's fine, but you're cheating at work by leveraging scales so you give dishonest weights. Yeah, you're tithing your income. That's great, but you're protecting your money from people who are in need by hiding it in technicalities. You're observing feasts and festivals, and that's fine, but you lie in court, and you show favoritism to get your way, and you generally deprive the, the poor of justice. In Amos 5.22 illustrates the relationship, and even the priority of this dimension of righteousness when he says, even though God is saying to the people, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what he wants. Which is to say, we can't be in right relationship with God if we are in wrong relationships with our neighbors. We can't be righteous if we're not also just they're two heads of the head and tail of the same coin. They just always go together. And so we can't separate out and feel good about our sort of individual righteousness as long as we are also participating in, just, in injustice. So Jesus, I think, is speaking here to the people who have been on the receiving end of that. They've been denied justice. And if all this sounds kind of like woke and postmodern, I'm quote a specialist here named John Calvin, who was a um, reformer about 500 years ago and the least woke person I know. Um, He said, writing about this passage in his commentary in Matthew 5, that he thinks those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who have suffered poverty, those who lack the basic necessities of life, and have been defrauded of their rights. In fact, he rephrases the passage this way. He says, happy are those who, 
though their wishes are so moderate that they desire nothing to be granted to them but what is reasonable. They are yet in a languishing condition like people who are famishing with hunger. So Jesus is on this hill and he's talking to people who have experienced the sort of backside of injustice. And he says to them, you're blessed if you crave these things to be made right. These are the people like the psalmist who cries out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I think in modern times, it's like the mother or father in the Middle East, whether in Gaza or Lebanon or various places, who are afraid to sleep at night because a bomb may hit their house. They may have to leave in the middle of it. This is not how things should be. It's the person who recognizes that the path to money and power and respect seems to be really wide and smooth for some people, and for other people, there's all kinds of obstacles in the road. It's the people who would say with Martin Luther King that, quoting the prophet um, Amos, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness crave living in a world in which righteousness and justice are the rule and not the exception. And I think it's possible to make two, two mistakes here. One of them is, we've already talked about, is to be only concerned for our sort of personal piety. And piety is not necessarily righteousness. It's just behaviors that we participate in. And our, if we do that, our appetite for righteousness is too small. Um, I think there's another mistake we can make, and this is the one I'm prone to, just cards on the table, which is I grew up in a tradition that really promoted the sort of moral scrupulosity. God is watching. Jesus. It's kind of like hard to distinguish God and Santa Claus. They know when you've been, they both know when you've been naughty or nice. <laughs> they know when you're sleeping. They know you're, when you're awake. It's all very confusing. But all I knew is that in either case, someone's watching and I have to be very, very careful all the time about what I think and say and do. And I think that there's a mistake that people in my situation can make is learn that God cares about this other dimension of righteousness as much or more, and then decide that that dimension doesn't matter anymore. That my own personal sort of connection to God, my own personal um, righteousness or holiness doesn't matter because what really matters is this sort of social engagement. That's the opposite mistake. If we are only concerned with things like policy and other things, our appetite is too small. And so those who hunger and thirst for righteousness recognize that the world is not as it should be. They crave a world that is made right. And they recognize, some of them, that they are largely the recipients of injustice, others that they are complicit in injustice, but all of us that we have a duty to walk God's path with him. And Jesus says remarkably that if you're in this situation, if you hunger and thirst for these kinds of things, if you crave justice, then you, are, you have arrived. You are in an enviable position. You are enjoying a special access you are blessed because this craving comes with a promise, which takes us to number three. What does it mean to be satisfied? I think sort of basically if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what that means is that our hearts are tuned 
to God's hearts. We want what he wants. He wants a world in which righteous and justice are, righteousness and justice are the rule. What I think is really interesting about this image is that we're talking about appetites. And the thing about appetites is they are never satisfied. That's why all of us will make grand promises to ourselves about eating less or eating differently in January. And by February, we won't be doing those things. It's because appetites are never satisfied. And they're hard to curb. The only place I have ever experienced the total satisfaction of my appetite for food was at my grandmother's house growing up. I would wake up late to the smell of bacon every day. I don't know how she did it. She was a wonder woman, right? I wake up to bacon, eat a gigantic breakfast, and about the time that she had all the plates cleared and washed, she'd say, I bet we're ready for a snack. And I would say, yes, ma'am, I think we are. And so she would make us a snack. And about the time I finished my snack, she's like, who wants lunch? And I'm like, I want lunch. <laughs> and so I'd eat again. And about the time we got back from fishing or doing whatever, she's like, you could use a snack. I could use a snack. Yes, ma'am. And I would realize at some point that after the couple of weeks I would spend with her at, in my summers, I have not been hungry in weeks. I'd, I haven't had the chance to be hungry <laughs> Because as soon as I think there might be some notion of thinking about food, there it is, right in front of me again. This is sort of a silly example, but I think this is the kind of world that Jesus is envisioning on the mountaintop, which is that you won't have time to hunger for justice and righteousness because it's always there. There's a promise to satisfy, not just to take the edge off or to tide you over, but to totally fill up the hunger for justice and righteousness. You won't have time to crave it because it'll just be there for you. And there's really nothing else in the world that can promise these kinds of things. If, if you're looking for blessing the way the Greeks were looking for blessing, you can never have enough money to be satisfied. You can never have enough power to be satisfied. You can never have enough respect or reputation to be satisfied. But what makes this um, kind of an enviable position is that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a craving that God promises to fill. It's a craving that will never be disappointed because God will meet it. What does that look like? Now, obviously, I think... We would all imagine that this craving could be filled in the sweet by and by, right? In the next world, in eternity, after the resurrection. And I think, yes, that's right. Ultimately, completely in its fullness, this is a promise that we enjoy in the future. But I also think that this is a promise that we can enjoy at least in some sort of foretaste within the church, you know, Jesus uh, experienced the ultimate injustice. He lived the life of righteousness in all its dimensions and yet ex- received the penalty of living a life of unrighteousness. So his good life was met with death. And when he was raised from the dead, he kind of broke the teeth of that constant fight and struggle for injustice. And the spirit that raised Jesus gives us the power to crave righteousness and justice in a way that we really can't without him. 
So the rest of this sermon, which I'm trying not to, I mean, spoiler alert, it's a very old document, so, you know, you could read it this week. There's sermons coming, uh, but I don't want to ruin it for whoever comes next. I think the rest of this sermon really casts a vision for ethics and for character and for a lifestyle that, were, that was to say, if you would just do these things, you can't fix the Roman problem. They're, they're out there, right? But here in this body of people that follows Jesus, if you were to live this way, you could experience this kind of justice and righteousness now. Maybe not completely, but at least in part. I took this out of the notes, but I just got to be true to myself. I'm always going to talk about Deuteronomy. I don't, I don't fully understand it, but I think that's the theme in any sermon I've given in the last, in 2023, I'm going to talk about Deuteronomy. And one of the visions for life in the law, it's Deuteronomy 15. You could look this up this week. God tells the people, if you live the way I'm telling you to live, there don't have to be any poor people among you. So following the law is not just about each individual person being righteous before God. It's creating a society in which there don't have to be anyone, there doesn't have to be anyone who has an unmet need. What's really remarkable to me about that same passage is that God says, you're not going to do this. So here's how I want you to treat poor people. You're not going to do what I really want, so let me give you the like plan B, which is treat the poor in the following way. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so one of the things that that means to me, it means a lot of things, but one of the things that it means to me is this vision for a life in which, at least among God's people, there don't have to be any needy people. There don't have to be any poor. There doesn't have to be any, any injustice, at least in this room, at least in this church, at least in this body. Out there, it's a tough world. God never promised that you wouldn't face challenges out there. But in here, in here, we can have this glimpse of what Jesus promises, that that hunger and thirst for righteousness could be realized in some way if, we, if God's people lived the way God imagines. So I, I want to close just with a, su- a summary thought, and then I'll pray. That those who crave justice are right where God wants them because they won't be disappointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your vision of life for us exceeds our own vision of life for us. We're thankful that the things we think are impossible, you remind us uh, in the scriptures and in the life of Jesus, and even if, our, if we're willing to see it in our own experience, we see that the things that we think are impossible in this life really are possible when we surrender to the Holy Spirit and catch the same vision that, that you cast here in these passages. We pray that you would give us a bigger picture of what it means um, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and trust uh, that you are good and great and will fill it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.